0: This week, we have Bill Lamy, Azure RTOS Program Manager. How's it going, Bill?
1: Good. How about yourself?
0: It's going great. i um, excited to talk to you. This is a, this is a cool topic. Um, okay, Carl, what do we have for the comment of the week?
2: So the comment of the week that we got from uh, Jack on Twitter, uh, last episode, we were talking about Linux dev environments. Mm-hmm. And we had talked about using a container for a dev environment. And he's like, that sounds an awful lot like um visual studio code containers which are um dev containers which is something that microsoft and Mm -hmm. github provides and that is true and you had a little bit of twitter conversation going back and forth is there anything you'd like to kind of just comment
0: yeah i had totally forgot that those even existed um and basically i i don't i don't think they work well for the way that i do things with a dedicated linux machine that i'm remoting into um if you are using docker it looks like they're optimized for like local docker usage um because it can automate some of the things from you um but he he had the the comment here um he said it's a good way to get up and running quickly with a standardized dev environment especially with code spaces um so that is really good feedback um is is basically the the strategy that i was talking about was setting up a container for like you know, each type of dev environment. So you either have like one for Python and one for C sharp or, you know, containers are free, right? So having like literally one for each project and like using that container, basically just connecting into it and having a separate dev environment for every single one of your projects. Um, and this is a way to to bootstrap some of that stuff. I think it's, I look, there's some manual instructions that I could have used for the way that I do things with a remote Linux machine. Um, and there would be some some benefit to that. Um, So I think it's good for, for our listeners to be aware, Um, just pick whichever one works for you. So good, good discussion.
2: Awesome. If you want to get mentioned on the show, like Jack, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on our website or Twitter. And we especially love those five-star iTunes reviews.
0: Yes, we do. Okay. What do we have in the news? The first one here, how we ported Linux to the M1.
2: So uh, this really got my attention because you have an M1 uh, Mac uh, laptop Mm -hmm. and First of all, this implies that, hey, Linux kernel now runs on an M1. Um, But what's kind of interesting, and I'm not going to go into the details because they get really low level really fast, is this is a company that specializes in, uh, you know, virtualization and understanding how to interact with the hardware. And they go into really deep detail on what is actually different on the M1 chip compared to a normal ARM chip. And let's just say like almost immediately Apple changed a lot of things pretty drastically. Uh, but in the, the way they did it was for optimization for performance and being quick. Mm-hmm. So if you're into those kinds of blog posts, I would really check out the show notes and check it out. Um, I just don't want to get into that many acronyms going into our normal conversation. <laughs>
0: Right. This, the details. Yeah, this had to be a, just a monumental task to get this working. To me, it feels kind of hacky. I mean, I th- they obviously got it working, and you can use it. Um, I don't know how useful it actually is, and it's not using. You know, people um, have pointed out that it's not using like the neural engine, and I don't know. There's just a lot of features on that chip that I just don't think it's using. I mean, the the reality is it's it's Linux, and they're not it's not optimized for that that chip right now there's a ton of optimization that would need to follow this so i think it's
2: yeah yeah if you are interested in kind of like kicking the tires on it though if you have that Mm -hmm. they give instructions at the bottom of the article uh basically you know if you start with ubuntu they follow these commands in this order you can get it not only running but then you can get it back to its pristine condition as well so you can kind of go there and go back
0: yep i have uh zero interest in this but i think it's a, a unique uh technical challenge <clears throat> so i like it from that perspective uh okay next story firefox 85 cracks down on super cookies
2: yeah super cookies are an issue because uh <clears throat> they're very difficult to find and remove uh if you're interested in security and privacy um but firefox has found ways to combat some of the techniques um so uh, first of all you know what are they you know they're there are ways to put information on your computer or to identify your computer and associate that with some information that somebody has on the back end. Um, Over the years, there's been different techniques, either by using flash storage, ET tags, and various other just obscure browser things, including offering you unique images and embedding data in those images. So what Firefox is doing to combat some of these is to kind of uh, partition their caches so it, uh, for instance if you go to the msdevshow.com and download one of our images and then there's another site that's maybe hot linking our image um, normally it would just cache that image and give it the same but now they're caching those images differently just in case we were using a super cookie which we're not we're trying to be as user-friendly as possible just an example but you know it On that other site, it's now keeping a cache, but it's its own cache. It's not going to use the cache from msdevshow.com. And that's a way to kind of break some of those connections and provide some network uh, isolation to prevent these super cookies from being set.
0: And I was going to ask a question, but I found the answer in here. So I was curious if they copy the image between caches and it looks like they do um oh but they don't share the caches across sites i guess that's kind of key especially for like cookies and things like that um interesting i mean i i applaud what they're doing because it's kind of ridiculous the level of tracking that (laughs) happens on the internet right now so that's good they're they're kind of they're doing a really nice really nice work in this space
2: yeah and you know you know one of the obvious questions is like what kind of performance impact is this going to have yeah And it looks like I'm not going to go super details. If you want to get all the metrics, you can go to the site, but you know, it's around a 1% impact and most people are not going to really notice that on most websites.
0: Right, right. I would, I would take a 1% decrease in performance if I, if there was an increase in privacy for sure. Cool. Um, and then the last one here, we rendered a million web pages to find out what makes the web slow.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this is really interesting, you know, it's a, it's a lot of hard work to, you know, figure out what makes a, a given website slow. And, uh, this was an interesting approach, like, uh, you know, measuring as much as you can about the top million websites, kind of classifying the different features of them and trying to figure out which ones, uh, you know, which features, um, make a webpage faster or slower. Uh, so they looked at things like what version of HTTP did they use? Um, interesting. There's uh 0.003% of sites using HTTP 0.09. Um, a majority is HTTP two and HTTP 1.1. And they look at the performance impacts later that that has, they also looked at what is the most, uh, uh, common URLs that sites will include. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, the, obviously the number one is Google analytics, um,
0: yeah, whatever happened to server side analytics, like that, that was, you could do a lot of really cool analytics. And I know there is like a whole bunch of stuff to, to get from the client, but I just feel like everybody just kind of switched over and now we're just giving away all of our privacy. So we have better stats.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then they look at different libraries that are included and kind of then look at those libraries and see like, how fast is it from when you make that request till it's loaded till it's interactive
0: mm-hmm.
2: and kind of ironically, You know, uh, a lot of us no longer use jQuery, but that's still one of the largest libraries still out there. And that has one of the biggest performance impacts on a web page, too. So you can look through this and see, um, you know, maybe here's uh, some data that's showing what makes a web page slow for these things and compare it to what you're doing and seeing if that your your data is lining up with theirs and finding ways to, you know, mitigate those things that are making a, a website get outside of its performance, uh, you know, aspects that you're looking Mm.
0: for. I don't know if you caught this comment. This is a link to the previous news story. It says um, there's a handful of scripts that are linked on a large portion of websites. This means we can expect these resources to be in a cache, right? Not anymore. Since Chrome 86, resources requests from different domains will not share cache. Firefox is planning to implement the same, uh, which is uh, something that we talked about. Um, obviously, and then Safari has been splitting its cache like this for years. So we talked about that 1% performance impact. Uh, you're actually getting that now on all of your browsers. So that's already happening. And I didn't realize that because that that's kind of a big deal now, whenever I, I like to use like CDN versions of different libraries. Um, I'll probably just start hosting those myself, uh, from, from this point on, since I know they're separated anyway.
2: Yeah. Perfect observation.
0: Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. So let's talk to Bill about RTOS. So I, th- I feel like we should, we should just start with kind of the foundational thing. Like what is an RTOS?
1: Uh, that's a great place to start. And, and also before we get going, uh, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys in the audience. Uh, so RTOS stands for real-time operating system and uh, a good way, or at least a, an analogous way to look at it is, is take something like Linux or windows and think really super small and really super fast. So, where a Linux or Windows would be a megabyte type operating system, uh, an RTOS is in the K bytes. Uh, so, like a minimal Azure RTOS ThreadX implementation would be like 2K bytes of memory on a small, teeny device. So, really small and fast uh, operating system stuff on small uh, processors.
0: Okay.
2: So yeah, go ahead, Carl. So, just to, just to pull like a little, maybe like a little bit more behind that, the only time that I ever like, remember hearing about RTOS kind of before maybe the last couple of years where it got big in IoT was, um, you know, obviously computer science classes, they would talk about RTOS, but they would be glossed over very quickly. And then normally somebody would say, this is what nuclear power plants run. And like, they need it for performance because you don't want like, you know, an alarm going off, alerting you to a nuclear disaster that, you know, Could have been predictable performance, right? Yeah. Predictable performance. So, so, you know, is there a difference between what we're going to be talking about today within RTOS and maybe what would have been available 10 plus years ago?
1: Uh, 10 plus years ago, probably not, because really Azure RTOS, ThreadX has been out for about 23 years. Hmm. Uh, But you are right in looking at the real time part of it. Uh, Another distinction between the, uh, well, if we go back to fast, what I said before about the difference between an RTOS and a Linux or Windows, that um, also fast means deterministic uh, and real-time. So between any point in time of a, an external event to another uh, to a piece of processing code, that has to be a bounded, fixed period of time. Uh, and so an RTOS can deliver that where a rich OS like Windows or Linux, designed for a different purpose, mind you, uh, can't really do that so well. And that's your nuclear power example. You know, we must do this by then, or otherwise we have a meltdown. You know? yeah. mm-hmm. So that would be bad.
0: So how does that right. work when there's multiple, like, things competing for its attention? Like, just sort of at a fundamental level to lay the, the framework here. Because obviously, okay, so the, the temperature of the nuclear reactor is too high, and I want to have predictable performance, so it, you know, I'm able to signal this alert or this other system. But what if I have two reactors and they're both melting down? Do I... Do I ultimately need like two r, r you know RTOS systems or like if I have one what am I dealing with there?
1: Really a systems issue so the application will have to be designed to meet that requirement. Okay. Uh it Gets might be there. a multiprocessor solution or hmm. it might be you know just prioritizing the threads in the operating okay. system or even interrupts. So there's different you know threads can preempt each other and it's Generally, most RTOSs are a priority-based preemptive scheduling type algorithm. Mm-hmm. So, highest priority runs, preempts lower priority. Priorities of the same level usually go in round robin. Uh, but so you could have different priorities depending on the level of urgency of a particular need, uh, and you also might have you know segment into different processors running separate operating systems.
0: That's awesome. That now I I I have a much better mental model of all this now. Awesome.
1: All right. So you're coming to
2: us because you were part of a company called Express Logic, and that eventually became Azure Artos. Can you give us a little bit of history about that, so we understand what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the day?
1: Yeah, that's a long history. So uh, um, I was one of the co-founders of Express Logic mm-hmm. some 23, maybe 24 years ago now, uh, and so we we started off trying to just handle the basic real-time operating system needs. So it was mostly multitasking. Uh, and primitives to communicate and synchronize between tasks. Um, And as the years uh, evolved, we added networking stacks, file system, GUI, USB. uh, And then over the last maybe five to eight years, we started doing more IoT things, uh, which includes protocols like MQTT on top of the uh, TCP IP stack and TLS for the uh, socket layer security of the communication. and then that kind of brought us into supporting a whole bunch of different clouds, including Azure. Um, and, uh, apparently we did a good enough job to get Microsoft's attention, um, you know, in the IOT space for small devices and we were lucky enough to be acquired.
0: That's really cool. And what kinds of chips does this run on? I've seen like MCUs mentioned. I don't even know what an MCU is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well see, uh, yeah, that's, that's the devil is in the processor. Really. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Azure RTOS can run on small MCUs, which means uh, a small microprocessor running maybe at 100 megahertz okay. with maybe as little as 64K of memory, uh, all the way up to, you know, quad core, um, you know, 64-bit ARM processors running mm. in a gigahertz range. You know, it's a, uh, it scales quite a bit. The typical use case, though, for Azure RTOS is more on the small, tiny devices, but you'll see us used even on the higher end parts for real-time performance. Where uh, Linux or Windows or something else might not be uh, real time enough for the need. Okay.
2: So, what what kind of uh, you know scenarios make an RTOS well saluted for an IoT situation?
1: It's really the device. So if you're trying to get some kind of, um, you know, we're like the, the thing in Internet of Things, but you could even think of as the tiny thing in Internet of Things. So a small sensor, maybe a light bulb that wants to you know, report its status uh, you know, to uh, Azure, for instance. Uh, that, that particular type of device couldn't have a very big processor. It just wouldn't have enough power. Um, it would make the device too costly. So, you know, for all of those reasons you have a real constrained processor, uh, and then in that situation, you know, how can you get, you know, telemetry data to and from that light bulb? And so something like an Azure RTOS that's really lightweight, starting at maybe a uh, 2K bytes for the minimal kernel and for a cloud connection maybe around 50K bytes, you know, that could be the the right solution. But it's really just an engineering problem. You you have constraints on size and power and things like that and and then that leads us to something uh, that has a small software footprint, like an RTOS.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, you mentioned, so, every, you know, that there's like this predictability. So does that mean, you know, we know that like every operating system has just really weird, like crash conditions, and there's there's a lot of things going on. Um, I mean, does it mean that some something like an RTOS is going to have like predictable power usage as well? And that's another reason why it's well suited for IoT?
1: Yeah, it certainly could, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, that tends to be a, an application decision. Right, you
0: know? like how many things you're running, yeah.
1: Yeah, how many things they, and how much you can shut down and how long you go into low power or when you go into low power. But but it's just an engineering problem, just like anything else, where you take your power budget and you try to you know map that onto what your system needs are.
0: Okay, and you just have to... So so basically, you just have to follow like certain primitives. I mean, so there's, there's the physical hardware, then there's sort of the RTOS platform. And as long as you're using kind of the RTOS APIs... You're building a basically an R well, like a real-time application then, right? But it's it's gonna be bound to whatever you build.
1: Yeah. I mean it's, it's like Windows programming to some degree. If, mm-hmm. if you're making Win32 API calls, you can you know run that on one machine just like you can run that right. on another machine. And RTOS provides a platform. So, you know, we're simply a, a platform for running applications. Now the applications use our API, not a Win32 API. Mm-hmm. But it's the same kind of concept. Maybe the difference is, though, is that the the hardware platform is radically different between, uh, you know, RTOS users as it would be uh, Windows, for instance. Right.
2: So is is there anything that you have to give up when you're writing an application for like a hyper optimized OS like Azure RTOS? I mean, are are we going to get things like a graphical user interface or stuff like that at that high level or is it pretty robust in that sense?
1: Well, that's when you're on the RTOS side, you're generally dealing with some type of constrained environment. So, but that constraint varies wildly. Some some applications have lots of memory while others have, you know, teeny bits of memory. Uh, in terms of components, uh, Azure RTOS has kind of the basic building blocks of an OS. We have a file system called FileX, a uh, 2D graphics runtime engine called GUIX, uh network stack called NetX Duo. Uh, that's TCP/IP. Uh, and then uh, usb is a host device uh, USB stack. So we have the the core components. Um, you can use, you know, sometimes you use ThreadX with just FileX. Sometimes it'll be ThreadX and NetX Duo only, or maybe all of them together. That combination of usage is part of the application design as well, you know, what their needs are and what their constraints are. Uh, so it, it varies wildly, but we do have at least, you know, if you look at it from a basic OS perspective, we have a lot of the core components.
0: Okay, am I going to always be programming in like C, C plus Can I use other languages?
1: Uh, almost always in C. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the uh, embedded system surveys, uh, in terms of the developers in our marketplace, uh, I think it's like eighty percent C, maybe fifteen percent C plus plus, and then there's the other, and that other could even include assembly language.
0: Oh wow, that's got to be interesting. So okay, I'll have to think about that one for a little bit.
1: <laughs> you're on. I mean, you're on the metal, is, is basically. What yeah.
0: Yeah, I was just trying to think of how that would interact then with with your, with your the the RTOS. So is it still using the RTOS or are, they, or are they literally just going straight to the metal?
1: I would imagine in that scenario, it was straight to the metal okay. RTOS, you know, maybe just a loop in assembly language.
0: Right. That's wild. Okay, cool.
2: So considering that this is, you know, an IoT product, you know, does this integrate with Azure IoT Hub? in particular? And you know, what does that look
1: like compared to the normal SDKs that we might be familiar with? So before we were acquired, uh, when we were standalone, uh, we would integrate with uh, the CSDK. So we would take our mm. uh, our MQTT stack and our TLS stack, and then we just would integrate them into the CSDK. Since acquisition, uh, we've come in and we've kind of helped the team you know, re-architect the CSDK to make it smaller and make it more applicable to the tiny devices that we serve. And so now now we have Azure RTOS with the a new embedded CSDK, an API layer that looks like Azure RTOS APIs that can talk to IoT Hub, IoT Central with just a, an, an API set. And that includes things like plug and play and soon-to-be device provisioning and device update. So all of that stuff will be uh, integrated into a, a new set of uh, APIs for Azure RTOS. and that's kind of what we've been working on mostly since the acquisition.
0: Okay, so if I'm in that like development cycle where I'm I'm writing code for that and I'm connecting to IoT Hub, like what is what does that whole cycle looks like? Like, how do I? Is that normally going to be like different people? Am I going to have one developer that's that's sort of a full stack IoT developer?
1: Yeah, that varies quite a bit too. Okay, uh, you know some teams are big, some teams are small. Uh, generally, it's a multi-person team. I think the average team size is from five to ten people, uh, and so each team member has lots of responsibilities. So you you do have to straddle the boundaries of mm-hmm. you know real-time programming, maybe even network programming as well, uh, and now certainly cloud programming, or
2: mm-hmm. at least
1: you know the cloud connection part of the programming. So, you know, it really does vary. Now, the, the development is not on the on the device itself. Unlike, you know, if you're doing Windows development, you're actually developing on the device you're going to run on. Um, our development is all cross-development. So we'll have tools running on Windows, uh, an IDE, a compiler, a linker, a locator, and even a debug connection that can actually talk to a target through JTAG or some other communication channel. And then that information is exported to the target burned in flash, and And then we run and debug on the target, but there's no, there's no development on the target like there would be on a, on a rich OS platform.
0: Interesting. So you can write, you can, you can run a virtual RTOS system on a non-RTOS system, but it's not going to be real time, right?
1: Uh, No, but at least you could uh, play with the APIs and things like that. Yeah, of course. we can have like a, a Win32 simulation. So Azure RTOS runs you know, on Win32 using Win32 threading primitives underneath instead of what would normally be assembly language for a processor on our end.
0: Okay, okay. And can I just download all those tools for free? Like if somebody's listening and they want to try it out or how does that work?
1: Yes, there's a couple things. Uh, First of all, for just general information, azure.com slash RTOS Hmm. gets you to the main RTOS page for Azure RTOS. Uh, And then from there, you can find uh, links to GitHub. Uh, GitHub, you can just uh, go to azure rtos and that's the uh, repo for uh, uh, Azure ArtOS on GitHub. And there you can find everything effectively, all the source code and everything else. It's all available there for free exploration. You can even use it for development. Um, when you get down to production though, there's a production license required and we have that available directly from Microsoft. We also have arrangements with four of the leading semiconductor companies, uh, ST, NXP, Renaissance and Microchip, where that production license already prepaid. So customers or developers using those chips get a free license. Oh, that's really cool. So if I
2: use that chip as part of whatever device I'm creating, then that's basically prepaid OS license as well.
1: Exactly right. They have no cost. They have full source code, uh, free production rights. Uh, They can make a billion units, and there's no cost.
2: So, I mean, you you mentioned uh, C and maybe some of those ancillary additional languages. Are there any other skills that, you know, a successful developer would need to
1: program for this. Uh, yeah, you have to be crazy enough to do it, <laughs> right? No, it's it's really you know it's uh, it's for developers that really enjoy being you know kind of the marriage between software and hardware. So you are really you know close to the metal most of the time. Uh, you know you have to you have to like that, um, and you have to i always appreciated the fact that i could control or i knew exactly what was happening it wasn't obscure like in a in a big operating system environment what happens from point a to point b Mm -hmm. um but you kind of have to really just dig that sort of you know using terminology from the 1960s maybe
0: yeah this the simplicity is is really appealing to me like looking through some of the source code and it's just like man this is so simple i don't have to think about like huh, this is using 100 node packages and they're each using another 100 and I have literally 3,000 node packages. It's like, nope, here's the C file. <laughs> here's the other C file. And if you're curious what that's doing, here's like the third C file. And like, you can just sort of trace it through there. Um, there definitely must be something appealing about that simplicity.
1: Yeah, and the art form, you know, for us is is how to make, you know, something like multitasking, how to make it super small. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the problem domain keeps shrinking and shrinking. The better job we do.
0: Oh yeah, that's a really good point. That's a good point.
1: Yeah.
2: So, um, you know, I think I saw somewhere that said that you know, uh, this technology is powering 6.2 billion devices. You know, you know what what kind of devices are these that are already out in the field? And you know, not asking you to call it names, but you know, what kinds of of uh, devices might we recognize?
1: Yeah, that's really good. The uh, the number, the 6.2 billion number, comes from a VDC research market survey. So it's not us just making up numbers. It's from a real reputable market research firm. Uh, that's 2017. We're actually uh, working with VDC to get an updated number. You know now, so they're going to take our licenses and extrapolate now the, the new uh, number of production units of Azure Artos ThreadX. Uh, as far as the devices themselves, they range from a uh, you know wearables. Um, to uh, heart monitors, to uh, H- HP, anything that HP prints, you know, has a good possibility of having ThreadX inside of it. Uh, an area that you wouldn't expect uh, or maybe not even appreciate uh, as a common use case for ThreadX is your smartphone. So we're certainly not the core operating system in a in a smartphone, for instance. However, those smartphones have a cellular modem, uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. Sound GPS. processing, yeah. Yes, and each one of those chips is a very—that's yeah, where we get a lot of our volume numbers. Actually, each one of those <laughs> chips is a place where you'll find ThreadX. So we live in the peripheral around you know the uh, the core um, you know processor and a smartphone, hmm. uh, and you'll even see some weird things like uh, the Deep Impact space probe, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, those kind of things. Uh, you know, we have very small number of deployments, but kind of fun.
0: Yeah, I, I've actually bumped into NXP a few times and they they always do some really cool stuff. And I remember talking to them at CES a couple of years ago and they were showing me they, they had like this uh, sound processing demo and they said they sold it to um, like a significant phone manufacturer and like had me sort of read behind the lines as to like what giant phone man. And I won't have you comment on it, but, <laughs> but um, I just I thought it was pretty cool um, that, you know, like a company like Apple will make something and then the other buying these these other chips and they're just handling like this tiny little piece of the puzzle. So really cool stuff. Yeah,
2: I think it also interesting to remind us like how much not just that, you know, our computing devices are powered by certain technology, but the subcomponents. Uh not to get too far off track, Jason and I are truck enthusiasts as well. And he was informing me that uh because of chip shortages on a new v ve- on a certain new vehicle like the one that he bought uh you can't get a certain trailer assist feature because they're running low on the chips and it's the chip for that feature so it's not that they can't make the truck but they can't add that feature to the truck because of the chip shortage so uh you know you know as people who are used to engineering you know, software and systems and, you know, seeing how that uh, meshes with hardware, you realize that there's all these little micro OSs running on things that we sometimes fail to remember. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just the thought that there's firmware inside of those chipsets is something that most people wouldn't think of.
0: Yeah. I had the firmware updated for my parking sensors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because there was, there was a bug in them and they were seeing ghosts. And, uh, they, they're like, yeah, we updated the firmware, but they, it's like, there's like firmware and everything. It's like, Hey, we're going to update the firmware on your seatbelts. And I'm like, why do my seatbelts have firmware? It's just crazy, but it's <laughs> probably, <there> it. <laughs> yeah, but it's probably, you know, running this, this RTOS code here in this tiny little chip. I mean, even the, the Apple, uh, what is it? They are lightning to HDMI cable has a little, you know, it has a chip in the cable that's doing video processing. It's wild.
1: Yeah. Well, and and- Even if you take like a a disc, like Mm. a smart card, those things have usually a processor and some of our software in them too.
0: Oh, wow. So,
1: you know, if you look at something, you know, even tiny, like an SD micro, you know, that bloody thing has a processor in it. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Speaking of
2: OSs and other platforms, um, you know, one thing that we did want to talk about as well is Microsoft a few years ago had a big splash announcement with Azure sphere. So, you know wh- where does Azure Sphere and Azure RTOS kind of sit in regards to each other, and is there any kind of relationship between the two?
1: Yeah, Azure Sphere is a is a super high end security um, IoT platform. Um, you know, you know, way beyond the security you can get with Azure RTOS on the smaller MCU platforms. Where we uh, where we help Azure Sphere is that uh, Azure Sphere has some coprocessors. There's a Cortex M4. Uh, co-processor and the Azure Sphere, I think it's the MT3620 uh, part. Uh, and so Azure RTOS can handle real-time things for Azure Sphere on that coprocessor. processor And then there's a communication between the core Azure Sphere OS and Azure RTOS. So you can do real-time things and also benefit from the high-end security of Azure Sphere. That's kind of the the better together story of Azure RTOS and Azure Sphere. Um, Azure Sphere by itself is in kind of a different marketplace than the typical Azure RTOS uh, customer would be, though.
0: Cool, cool. Um, anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't uh, bring up? No, I think I got that's, all my questions uh, in.
1: Yeah, I have all, all of... Uh, I mean, I wanted to make sure people knew where to find Azure RTOS for mm-hmm. more information. Usually, usually, my words on a web page do a lot better than my words in public. So I want to make sure that people know where it is. Uh, so azure.com slash RTOS. And then, you know, just for funsies, you know, poking around on GitHub and checking out the source code uh, is always a good thing to do.
0: Yeah, you should have that page hosted by um, Azure Artos
2: right <laughs> for predictable Actually, that performance does, uh, bring up a follow-up question you had mentioned that you had done work with the CSDK to make it uh, better optimized did those changes get pushed back into the normal CSDK for everybody else to take advantage of as well
1: yes the uh, the uh, embedded SDK is kind of more of a branch rather than a redesign of CSDK it's more of like a different option. Mm. So the CSDK lives like it was before um, and is really suitable maybe for Linux-type IoT devices. Uh, but the embedded SDK is good for Azure RTOS, but it's also good for other RTOSs. So there's no restriction in terms of using you know, the the fruits of our labor regarding the SDK with other RTOSs or even standalone.
0: Okay, very cool. Okay, Bill, uh, where can people find you?
1: People can find me at Microsoft. <laughs> <a>
0: trick question. <laughs> so they should go to azure.com slash RTOS. Yeah, azure.com slash
1: RTOS. Okay. Uh. And then, you know, people probably, you know, can find me on LinkedIn and other places like that as well for yeah. actual personal contact
0: <laughs> or just show up at one Redmond. Wait, no, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you'll pay for that joke. Okay. And Carl, where can people find you? At Carl's here. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash So Bill, thank you so much for coming on here and talk about our I definitely learned a lot.
1: Hey, thanks for having me guys.